This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome Matthew Cago from Fort Ticonderoga. How are you doing, Matthew? Very good. That's good to hear. Matthew Cago is the curator at uh, Fort Ticonderoga, which, what does that mean? What, what is your job? Well, I, I like to think, and I, I talk with my collections manager, who's one of our other staff here on the back end of the museum in some ways, that I deal with the content of what we have in our collections and the history of the site, whereas our collections manager and the collections department deals with how do we store that stuff, where do we put it, how do we track it as it moves throughout the museum. So I do a lot of the research that we have on uh, what we've got in the collection, and we've got a pretty enormous collection, actually. Uh, A lot of it that the public doesn't see on a regular basis, and so it keeps me quite busy. How long have you been there? Uh, I've been at Fort Ticonderoga since 2014, so edging on a little past three years now. Mm. Well, let's find out uh, uh, some about uh, Fort Ticonderoga itself. It's located in uh, northern New York in Ticonderoga on the shore of uh, Lake Champlain near Lake George. What is the uh, the history of this fort? Well, it's interesting. The uh, This is one of the few forts, I think, in the United States that can claim to have been held by the French, the English, and the Americans in the 18th century. Uh, certainly some of the forts in the southern part of the country can claim a similar lineage with the Spanish maybe in the place of the French. Uh, but the fort was actually begun in the winter of 1755, so what was the second year of the uh, French and Indian War, uh, not yet officially declared war between Great Britain and France uh, more broadly. And it was, in a lot of ways, a fort that was built in response to the defeat at the Battle of Lake George in September. The French had a retrenched camp at this position that was between Lake George and Lake Champlain, and with the defeat of Baron Dieskau's army at that battle, they fell back to this retrenched camp. And knowing that the British intended to drive north ultimately to Crown Point, orders came from the governor of Canada in September of 1755 for a Canadian-born engineer to arrive at the site here, which was already being called Carillon, even before uh, the fort was built, and to design a fortification sufficient to hold this place against an English attack basically as a front line, an advanced post from that at Crown Point, which was a little outdated uh, and couldn't withstand a a British siege. So it's not a fort in the sense of the major fortresses designed on the frontiers of the Kingdom of France itself that was built over a period of, of decades or years. It was really, we need a fort now, let's send the engineer, let's get the army to build it. And they began rather late in the year. Um, September, October of 1755, they started working. The engineer stays here until February of 1756, until the fort is is quite literally just enough built that it can defend from a a, a winter raid. I'm talking a, a wall that was only five to six feet high uh, in most places, and two wooden barracks buildings. And virtually the entire fort that first winter was built out of wood. Uh, This is one of the things that the French engineer found when he came to the site, is that they didn't expect, as they dug down, that the bedrock would be so shallow beneath the topsoil. And they didn't have the tools to dig down further and get to that stone, so they had to build in wood. So actually the original fort was uh, rather different than what you see today. Really? 
Now, uh, it came under attack in a couple of years, uh, and the French were able to defend it. They were. Uh, the fort, interestingly enough, people often ask us about the size of the armies here and how did they all stay in here, because when you walk inside, although the fort today uh, being reconstructed on the footprint of the original fortification uh, is, is large, it's not enormous inside. And that's because it was only ever designed to house maybe somewhere in the order of 300 to 350 men as a winter garrison. In the summer campaign season, as the ice thawed in the lakes and river systems, the armies would come out of their winter quarters, which for the French would be in uh, Quebec, Montreal, Trois-Rivières, Chambly, the kind of all these relatively built-up areas along the St. Lawrence and the Richelieu Valleys, and they would come south in May to mass here at Carillon, Fort Carillon, um, before either uh, acting offensively or defensively uh, towards the English. And those armies could swell to four, five, six thousand men. Uh, in fact, in 1757, there's an enormous number of soldiers here, not only French regulars, but Canadian militia, colonial regulars, and almost 2,000 Native Americans. Far more people than could ever fit in the barracks of the fort. And so they're actually camping on the land around uh, the fortification itself, um, giving this whole place a kind of much livelier atmosphere uh, than you would see it today. And the first major attack on the fortification happened in 1758 when uh, General Abercrombie, the British commander-in-chief, launched an expedition north with the intention of knocking out Fort Carillon. And to do so, he assembled what was the largest army ever massed in North America to that date. Uh, nearly 16,000 British and American soldiers mm. came north uh, across Lake George in something like 900 vessels, small boats and ships, uh, to land at the head of Lake George and ultimately with the intention of taking Fort Carillon. And to meet them, the French had a much, much smaller number of men under the Marquis de Montcalm. And Montcalm knew that he couldn't defend the actual fort itself. And what he did is about a half mile west of the fortification on a height somewhat higher than that that the fort sits on, had built a, a breastwork uh, of logs in, in literally almost just a day. Uh, the army, in fact, was very nervous that the British would attack them before they were all there. They had only been reinforced with an elite corps uh, that had been detached from service the day before the battle, really. Mm -hmm. um, and entrenched behind this breastwork, the English advancing uh, towards Fort Carillon, really threw the army uh, at the works rather than wait for a formal siege and bringing up the artillery, perhaps hoping that a coup de main could take the place uh, and not have to, to spend the time and energy uh, mm -hmm. regularly laying siege to it. And it was an utter disaster. Uh, the army that attacked Fort Carillon and Montcalm's men behind those lines was cut to pieces. There were nearly 2,000 casualties within that army, mm -hmm. which for the 18th century is an unheard of casualty rate. It was really uh, one of the worst defeats ever inflicted upon the British here in North America and remained probably the bloodiest single day's battle fought on this continent until the Civil War. Really? And so the British um, gave up. They didn't uh, take carry on. The, the battle was such that the British 
retreated quite precipitously uh, back down Lake George. Um, almost that day, they started falling back. It, it really stung them. Um, of course, historians have debated for some time why uh, they didn't try to regroup, but they, they sped pretty quickly back down to uh, the southern end of Lake George, uh, near Fort George, and kind of licked their wounds while the French were kind of thrown off. They, they imagined that the, the English would return you know, almost immediately. And so they didn't back down. They kept reinforcing the lines they had built, knowing that or expecting that another attack would be uh, imminent. But it never came, at least not in that year. The, the British did return in 1759 under General Jeffrey Amherst. And in the summer of 1759, as the British advanced on Fort Carillon, uh, the French also had to contend with a simultaneous British attack much further north towards Quebec, their own capital. So the French forces, which were smaller to begin with, were distributed more heavily towards the capital of, of the colony of New France rather than down here at, uh, at Fort Carillon. And so there was only really a token garrison left, and ultimately they received orders uh, after putting up a, a fairly stiff show of resistance, uh, firing mortar shells towards the British lines uh, and, uh, and ultimately skirmishing with some of those British troops. They received orders to blow up the powder magazine, which they did, uh, basically leveling one whole corner of the fort and starting a fire inside the fort, which lasted for days before they retreated back north, mm -hmm. ultimately blowing up the fort at Crown Point, Fort saint Frederic, uh, in their wake as well. Mm -hmm. So then the British hold the Fort Ticonderoga. Yes, indeed. And then it falls into British hands. And from 1759 until 1775, it remained in British hands. Uh, the fort was garrisoned with a, a minor garrison, really not, not an enormous quantity of men, enough to maintain, uh, to a certain extent, the fortifications and the ordnance that had been left here during the wars. But the garrison, in some cases, really didn't number more than 20 or 25 men uh, at some times. As the lead-up to the American Revolution uh, was occurring, you do see some shifts. There was a fire, for instance, in the much larger British fort at Crown Point, and it damaged, destroyed much of that fortification in the early 1770s, which left the British kind of wondering, well, do we try to rebuild the fort at Crown Point, or do we put our money and efforts into restoring uh, Ticonderoga, which they had renamed Fort Carillon when they captured it in 1759. And ultimately, they did make the decision that they were going to restore the fort at Ticonderoga. However, uh, they made that decision in the fall of 1774. And for any of your listeners who get up to the North Country in the late fall and early winter, it already starts getting a bit harrowing here weather-wise, uh, and you couldn't really get any work done over the winter. By the time the next spring rolled around, uh, when they would have looked at sending the supplies and the troops to start doing that work, the American Revolution had begun less than a month after uh, the opening shots of the Revolutionary War at Lexington and Concord. The fort here at Ticonderoga was taken actually on May 10th uh, of 1775 by uh, a joint uh, expedition jointly under the command of Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen. So mm -hmm. uh, they kind of preempted the British crown's restoration of the fort uh, early in the, the Revolutionary War. Now, the Americans or the rebels didn't hold the fort all that long, but they did take uh, the cannon that were there and uh, ship them or uh, drag them to Boston. 
Yes, indeed. And, and actually, it's a, it's a remarkable story, and it's, it's probably one of the best-known stories of Ticonderoga, is how in December of 1775, the uh, Americans selected a number of artillery, uh, and not just the Americans, but in particular Henry Knox, who had been a, a bookseller with only militia experience prior to the war, uh, came here. And actually, what's interesting, though, is that there were probably over a hundred pieces of ordnance between Ticonderoga and Crown Point that the Americans had captured very easily uh, in May of 1775. Knox didn't take all of them. He took 59 of them from both of the fortifications, you know, selecting amongst the better guns, the ones that were in, probably in better shape, that were calibers that were useful to the American forces. Um, and then ultimately, yes, <laughs> dragged, floated, uh, transported them all the way to Boston, where they were used to uh, push the British out of that city in March of 1776. What's interesting, though, is we have done a lot more research, and we've, we've made a real effort to, to dig into the history of artillery and cannons here at the fort, because Fort Ticonderoga today holds what is probably the largest collection of 18th century ordnance in the Western Hemisphere. Mm. Uh, we have over 150 cannon mortars and howitzers ranging in date from the late 17th century all the way to the early 19th century. And we've been trying to track down you know, what guns of those served at Ticonderoga and what other campaigns across the Atlantic uh, our other guns may have served in. And in doing some of the research, we found that once Knox took those guns down to Boston, they didn't just stay in Boston. Uh, a lot of them actually continued on. And in fact, we know that some of the men of Knox's own artillery regiment received orders once Boston had been uh, saved from the British and the British had left to go to Halifax, Nova Scotia, that a lot of those artillerymen and guns were sent back north all the way into Canada because simultaneously the capture of Ticonderoga had opened up this road to Canada. And the Americans invaded Canada in 1775, driving as far north as Quebec City itself. And they had stalled outside of Quebec uh, over the winter. And the American commander, Richard Montgomery, was killed in the attack on the city. Benedict Arnold, who was under him, uh, was wounded and, and really taken out of action. And they kind of dug in, waiting over the spring of 1776 to see if they could take Quebec before the British could send reinforcements into the St. Lawrence River. And ultimately, uh, the guns that had gone to Boston provided an opportunity, potentially, for the Americans to reduce Quebec. And so those guns and gunners made the trip back from Boston, probably across the eastern half of Massachusetts, um, up the Connecticut River Valley, crossing the military road to Crown Point to get into Lake Champlain, going down, that is north on Lake Champlain, and probably getting as far as Sorrel, Quebec, uh, on the St. Lawrence River, where the Richelieu and the St. Lawrence meet, uh, before they met the American army in full retreat from Quebec. Because, mm. in fact, as the ice had thawed on the St. Lawrence River, the British reinforcements had gotten in and almost literally landed in Quebec in the lower town, marched through the city, out the front gates, pushing the Americans uh, in front of them. So those men in cannon from Boston, now up in Quebec, then went back up Lake Champlain or south on Lake Champlain to land here at Ticonderoga with the rest of the army. So it's this incredibly circuitous route that a lot of these guns and soldiers took. And in 1776, in July of that year, that army that had been at Quebec had been pushed almost 300 miles from the doors of Quebec City itself back here at Ticonderoga, where the Americans decided to make their stand. Mm. But the uh, British uh, come in and, and take Fort Ticonderoga again. 
They, they did, ultimately. And they do that in 1777. And what often, I think, doesn't get uh, talked about is the American defense here in 1776, though. Because 1776, apart from the success at Boston in driving the British out, doesn't go particularly well for American arms. Um, if, if folks are familiar with Washington's campaigns around New York, you know, Washington gets hammered you know, one blow after another, kind of miraculously saving his army, but really getting beaten out of Long Island and onto Manhattan and across into Westchester and then across the Hudson and then, you know, chased across New Jersey, you know, winding up at the end of the year on the other side of the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. So the other American army is here at Ticonderoga. And these guys started the year, unlike Washington's uh, army in Cambridge, in a really bad way from this disastrous invasion of Canada. And it was at Ticonderoga under the command of Horatio Gates that they had to kind of whip this army back into shape. They had to get them healthy, they had to train them, they had to discipline them, uh, and they had to prepare the defenses. And this is where Ticonderoga takes on a much bigger connotation than just the fort that people think of when they visit us today. Because what this entailed was digging a massive system of earthworks and fortifications uh, spanning the Ticonderoga Peninsula and also incorporating land in what's now Vermont uh, and a place that became known after July as Mount Independence. And this system of fortifications was this interlocking uh, selection of earthworks and artillery positions, and it ultimately held something in the order of 13,000 American soldiers, the mm. second largest American army in the field, and uh, 13,000 men popped that into pretty high ranking of population centers in North America, at least for this kind of narrow window of time. And it's vitally important because they actually did the job of holding the line. Matthew Cagle, uh, I'm awfully sorry. I'm awfully sorry to have to interrupt here. We're going to take our our break, and then we only have a few minutes left. We're talking about Fort Ticonderoga with Matthew Cagle, who's the curator at Fort Ticonderoga in northern New York on the shores of Lake Champlain. You're listening to the Historians Podcast. And we hope you'll uh, find your uh, way clear to support the Historians podcast with a donation to our GoFundMe campaign. Uh, we'd appreciate it very much. The campaign uh, covers uh, our uh, technical expenses and other production costs. You can make a donation to GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2017. If you don't like to donate online, you can uh, send me a check. I'll make it out to Bob Cudmore, send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Matthew Cagle joins us, the curator at uh, Fort Ticonderoga. Fascinating uh, story you're telling, uh, Matthew, but I, I just want to get in some other points, if I could, rather quickly. Uh, the, and, and maybe I'll just say this, and uh, I hope I get it reasonably correct, uh, that ultimately the British uh, uh, take Fort Ticonderoga again in the campaign that's bringing uh, General John Burgoyne and his troops down to the important battle of uh, Saratoga, and then the British ult uh, ultimately abandoned the fort after the failure of the campaign in, in Saratoga, uh, New York, and it uh, ceased to be of military value, is the phrase that I saw, uh, and, and fell into ruin, uh, and then... Um, was you know owned well owned by I believe some private uh, citizens at some point. When did it become an historic site? 
Well, it, it became an historic site you might argue as early as 1783. Uh, and I say that because uh, although the British abandoned the fort in November of 1777, and, and I should point out that they do actually briefly reoccupy the place as late as 1781. We have a letter in our collection from Philip Schuyler to George Washington congratulating him on the successes at Yorktown, but saying, wait, the British are back at Ticonderoga and they're actually starting to rebuild part of the fortifications. But they didn't stay for long. But in 1783, George Washington, while waiting for the, the final peace terms to come in, decided to make a, a northern tour and he wanted to stop at, at Ticonderoga and see what had happened there earlier in the war. So you might say that he in some ways was the very first tourist of this <laughs> historic site. Uh, shortly thereafter, in the early 1790s, uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison visit and so by the early 19th century, it was already a place that people were traveling to. Um, the site itself, as a former military base, passed through state hands, and ultimately the state of New York granted it jointly in trust to Columbia College, now Columbia University in New York, and Union College in Schenectady. And it was from those colleges that a private citizen, William Ferris Pell, purchased the property in 1820. And in doing so, he preserved consciously the ruins that existed on the ground at that time. And I think you could argue is probably one of, if not the very first, preservation efforts in American history. And in the 1820s and 30s, this was a destination that people doing this northern tour would see the ruins of Fort Ticonderoga. Hmm. Now, when it, when it was actually a fort, who was responsible for built? You said that the, the French built a wooden fort, Fort Carrion. What, uh, who made it uh, the fort that we see today? Well, the fort you see today is in large part a reconstruction of the early 20th century. Uh, the fort walls throughout its history were actually made of wood, not stone. The barracks in the inside were made of stone, uh, as were some of the outer works of the fort, and those are what survived in a kind of ruined state into the 19th and 20th centuries. And it was uh, a gentleman named Stephen Hyatt Pelham Pell and his wife Sarah Gibbs Thompson uh, that ultimately, in 1908, uh, had the idea to restore the fort. And with the help of an English architect named Alfred Bossom, who had also gotten interested in the possibility of this, they literally added the stones to the existing uh, masonry that survived of what is the west or officer's barracks of the fort and kind of built it back up. So that building, which you can see and you can tour in today, incorporates probably something in the order of 60% of the original masonry that had been laid by the French army in 1756 that they added up from, because it was the, mm -hmm. the building within the fort that was the most intact. And between it, the opening of the museum here in July of 1909, which means we've been open for over a century now, uh, they continued to add reconstructed elements, ultimately completing the walls of the fort uh, by the 1940s. Hmm. Now, so what, did, what, what they is a did what they reconstruction of that did what fort. they uh, restore actually restore the walls, or did they create something that never really existed? Little from column A, little from column B. <laughs> okay. uh, like I say, they took the original masonry from the West Barracks and simply added to the existing masonry that survived and reconstructed that building. So it incorporates a lot of original features for things like the walls. They actually built them out of stone in the reconstruction, which is not how they were originally built. But in going through the fort, they were evaluating the uh, archaeological features, that we would call them today, uh, of the ground, finding an old line of stone kind of outlining the fort down below these piles of, of 
dirt and, uh, and rubble, and thinking, oh, this must have been the base of a much larger stone wall, and that's the way they reconstructed it. However, in the hundred years since they began that restoration, we've been able to reevaluate the French sources that are there, uh, look at archaeological material and other English sources that followed, uh, and realize that what they were probably looking at was not the base of a much taller stone wall, but the wooden, or rather the stone foundation that underpinned and leveled out the irregular bedrock on which the wooden walls of the fort mm-hmm. were originally built. I must say that uh, as a young uh, person or as a boy, uh, vis- we visited uh, Fort Ticonderoga a couple of times. I recently uh, went back, or fairly recently in the past uh, few years, uh, to Fort Ticonderoga. And it is a, a fascinating uh, place uh, to go. And, and really, there's a, there's a lot to see. Um, can, can you give us an idea of the kind of like what, what, what is there for uh, uh, tourists or history buffs to see? Certainly. Well, Fort Ticonderoga, as you say, is much more than just the fort, and there is an immense amount to see here. In fact, the Fort Ticonderoga Association that runs the site, we are a uh, private, not-for-profit historic site. We're not a state park. We're not a federal national park, as people often assume. holds about 2,000 acres of land across New York and Vermont on either side of Lake Champlain that encompass most of the original uh, defenses. So there's the the reconstructed fort itself, uh, where we have uh, exhibits, uh, including a... um, a major new exhibit up on the art and science of artillery in the 18th century. Uh, We just launched a mobile application, which will allow visitors as they walk around the fort's walls to pull up information about all the cannons that are on display, which is a new way for us to explore our collection, uh, which is also on display throughout many of the buildings on the campus. Uh, We have daily tours of the collection, of the history of the fort, uh, and we have a remarkable living history program. And I think what makes our living history program unique amongst historic sites is that given the the long and and fascinating history of this fortification, uh, we can't just pick a year and say, when you come to Fort Ticonderoga, you're in 1776. We want to give credit to the evolution of the, Mm -hmm. the military history here. And so each year we portray a different year of the fort's history. This year, if you come to visit, for instance, you would be seeing the year 1757 uh, and seeing French infantry and artillerymen who ultimately, over that spring and summer, prepared for the siege of Fort William Henry uh, and then the aftermath of that. So there'll be musket and cannon demonstrations each day based around the French uh, exercise for infantry and artillery from the time period. There's historic trades programs, carpentry, shoemaking, tailoring uh, that reflect those activities that would have been done to prepare the armies here. Uh, And in fact, all of those feed directly into our interpretive program. So the clothing that our soldiers wear, the footwear they Mm -hmm. wear, is all made here by hand in the manner it would have been in the 18th century. And a practical practical point, uh, you've got a nice place to eat up there. I mean, (laughs) to dine. We we have a wonderful cafe in our Log House Museum, which is actually uh, in its in its own right, an historic structure built in the early 20th century as a kind of tea room originally to make a, a welcome place for the, the early travelers in the era of the automobile, um, which is there. We also have, uh, as part of our standard ticket, uh, visitors can drive up Mount Defiance, which kind of looms over the entire site. Right. I was glad you mentioned that. Area. I wanted to ask you about Mount Defiance. Uh, that that overlooks the fort. I mean, uh, people would have, wouldn't they attack the fort from up there or something like that? 
Well, that, that was always a kind of a thought in the back of the mind of the Army. The, the challenge is there's, there was no road up there, so you'd have to build a road and then haul guns up there. And people often say, well, why didn't they build the fort at the top of Mount Defiance? Well, you can do it, but there's much less area in which to build a fort. And then ultimately, you have to continue to provision that with supplies, food, water, ammunition. And so the British in 1777 did move a couple pieces of artillery up to the top of the fortification, which was one of the factors, not the only factor, but one of the factors that compelled the American army to evacuate that fort that summer. Although I, I often add that, interestingly enough, in September of 1777, the Americans raided uh, Ticonderoga and the British garrison that was there, and they captured Mount Defiance, and they captured cannon up there, and they actually opened fire on the fort itself. But the fact is that firing from that height and range doesn't mean you're going to do any good if you're not trained artillerymen, uh, and these men weren't. They were okay. militiamen. Matthew Cagle, we're just out of time. He is the curator at Fort Ticonderoga in Ticonderoga, New York. You can find uh, much more online about uh, Fort uh, Ticonderoga if you're uh, planning a visit there. They're actually going to do some uh, work uh, uh, taking uh, some people out on the Lake Champlain on a touring boat called the Carry-On. That's one of their new initiatives at Fort Ticonderoga. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.